Hey, so good to uh, be with all of you today. I was sharing with the first hour, uh, I'm much more of a Baptist than I am a charismatic, but uh, I woke up this morning after a good night's sleep by the grace of God, and I was so excited because I knew I was going to get to come to church literally with all of you and share the word that uh, I almost spoke in tongues. I didn't, but I was close. So thanks for uh, the invitation. Thanks for letting me come and share with you. Uh, From what Mark has told me, you've been in a series called The King and the Kingdom, which is about uh, Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I'm going to shift this to the right a little bit today to the Gospel of Luke, although we're going to still be talking about the King and the Kingdom. So we're going to be in Luke 12 this morning. Uh, We're going to start at verse 1, and I'm going to read uh, the first 12 verses to kind of set the stage for what we're going to look at after that and see what the Lord would teach us this morning. So Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 1, let's pay close attention. This is God's word to you and to me. Luke says that, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Uh, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Uh, What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that can do no more. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, don't worry about how you'll defend yourselves or what you'll say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Well, I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're going to dive into uh, this section of Scripture and what follows after. Let's bow together. Father, thanks again for this day. I thank you for Mark and Jen and their leadership of this church. And I thank you, Lord, that every person here is here because you've ordained that. Lord, I just pray now as we look into this text that you would bless us, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would touch our hearts, that you would use this time and this message to move us and shape us and make us more into the image of Jesus. And it's in his great and holy name that we pray this. Amen. Well, a long time ago, before there were Democrats and Republicans, before there was a constitution or the Bill of Rights, or even the Declaration of Independence, there was Rome. Uh, Rome was originally a republic, but it eventually unraveled due to a long series of civil wars. And near the end of the republic, a young man by the name of Octavian rose to prominence. The great Roman statesman and orator Cicero 
said, Octavian is a talented young man who should be praised, honored, and eliminated. But in the years after Cicero said that, Octavian eliminated all of his enemies, including Cicero, transformed Rome from a republic into an empire, and took on the title Caesar Augustus. Uh, The empire that Augustus ruled was absolutely huge. It went all the way in the north from Scotland, all the way in the south to Egypt. It went all the way from the west of Spain to the east of Persia. Augustus had a standing army of a half million men and millions and millions more of citizens who required government assistance. And so in the 25th year of his reign, he decided to raise taxes. And in order to raise taxes, he decreed that a census be taken of everyone in the empire. When Augustus issued his decree for that sentence, census, there was an unknown Jewish couple that had to migrate south from Galilee up here down to Judea and Bethlehem, where the wife Mary gave birth to their infant son, whose name was Jesus. Now, when that decree was issued, everybody in the empire knew who Augustus was, and no one, no one knew who Jesus was. But now, 2,000 years later, few outside history departments and colleges and universities know who Augustus was, and millions and millions of people around the world worship Jesus. Well, one of the main reasons that happened was because the early church eventually infiltrated the empire. And then over time, it transformed it. It did so because those first Christians had the Holy Spirit of Jesus living in them, and they had his example to guide them. And they lived out the truth of what he taught them, such as the truth that's recorded for us here in Luke chapter 12. Uh, Luke says here that Jesus was preaching to a huge multitude. In fact, as we just read there in verse 1, it says that it was a crowd of many, many thousands. He's talking to them about incredibly important issues. Issues like heaven and hell, judgment and forgiveness, fear and faithfulness. But right in the middle of his message, some guy elbows his way to the front of the crowd. Kind of like people in our culture do when they want to see a celebrity or they have an agenda to promote. And he interrupts Jesus with a demand. Look what he says in verse 13. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, we're not given any background or details about this man's request, but it's obvious that he's involved in a legal dispute with his brother over the estate that their father had left them. And for this guy, the sun would never shine. The flowers were never going to bloom. The birds were never going to sing until he got all the stuff that he thought was his. Now, most of us don't like to think that Jesus ever got upset with anybody except groups like the Sadducees or the Pharisees. But the language and the intense tone of Jesus' rebuke in the original text indicates that he was really ticked off. Look what he says in verse 14. Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Let me uh, put that 
in the vernacular for us. It'd be as if Jesus looked him in the eye and he says, Goofball, why are you in my face about something as silly as this? See, Jesus is upset because he knows this guy is in a really, really bad place. This man is caught up in something that's really destructive. It's crippling him morally and it's destroying him spiritually. See, this man's standing right next to the Son of God. But all he can think about is stuff. And so Jesus turns to those close by, and I'm, I'm assuming that's the disciples and those close enough in the crowd to hear him. And he names this man's sin. Look what he says in verse 15. Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Now, greed is often defined as the desire to have more and more and more of what you already have enough of. Uh, One writer that I really like defines greed as the assumption that it's all there for my consumption. Uh, Maybe a simple definition of greed is the intense desire to get more and more stuff. Now, most of us would never think of ourselves as greedy, would we? I mean, if you and I were able to go to Starbucks and it was open up and we could sit across the table from each other and have a cup of coffee and we were chatting about our lives in Christ and just what's going on and I asked you, I said, are, are you greedy? You'd say, oh no, of course I'm not. And if you asked me, am I greedy? I'd say, of course I'm not greedy. But given what Jesus says here, would it maybe be wise to do a little self-evaluation? A little bit of spiritual inventory? Is it possible? Is it possible that all of us have been more influenced by the spirit of greed than maybe we realize? Let me give us something to meditate on for just a moment. Oh, (laughs) there we go. Thank you, honey. This is a picture of a storage unit. And as you can see, it is stuffed from the bottom to the top with stuff. Now, if you have a storage unit, I don't want you to think I'm picking on you. I'm using this kind of as a metaphor here, but I do want you to know some facts. Did you know that in the 1970s, there were very few storage units in the United States? But now in 2020, there are more storage units than all the McDonald's, Subways, and Starbucks combined. There are more storage units in the United States than post offices. Around the world, there are approximately 10,000 storage units, but over 5,300 of those reside in the United States. It's the fastest growing segment of the commercial real estate market and it generates $24 billion a year in revenue. Now, the vast majority of us in here, in fact, probably all of us in here, are not what part of or not part of what politicians call the 1%. But relatively speaking, friends, most of us in this room have a lot of stuff. 
So does that mean we're greedy? Well, I'm a pastor as well as a professor, and this is just my experience. Um, It may not be yours. But what I've observed over the years is that most of us who inhabit church world think that only really rich people are greedy. And now in 2020, there's an element of that kind of thinking that's spread into the political discourse and the popular culture. But friends, that view misrepresents the overall teaching of the scriptures. The Bible never ever teaches that riches and wealth in and of themselves are wrong. By the standards of their era and their time and their culture, Abraham and Job and David and especially Solomon were incredibly affluent. And throughout church history, numerous men and women of wealth have used their physical and their material resources to advance the the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, two of the most godly people I know, two men I know, really, really godly guys, are incredibly affluent. So I don't think that God's opposed to people making money and having money. But here's what we need to realize. For every verse in the Bible that speaks about prosperity... There are five to ten that warn us time and again about greed. And rich people are not the only ones who need to pay attention to that. I mean, after all, there's, there's no indication in this passage that the guy who interrupted Jesus was rich. But it's really clear that Jesus says he was greedy. And so I think that means we'd all be well-served. To do a little self-evaluation, a little bit of spiritual inventory. Because see, greed is rooted in this silly, silly idea that if I just have more and more and more stuff, my life will be better and better. And that mentality is really dangerous because it can blind us to the eternal things of God. It can take us away from the most valuable things of life. Well, Jesus knew all that, and so what he does here to reinforce his point is what he often did, and that is he tells a story. Look at verses 16 and following. Jesus says, The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. Uh, He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat. Drink. And be merry. Now, we don't know the name of this rich farmer, but it's obvious that he was really, really successful. And you know this. It doesn't matter what industry or occupation you're in. You don't become that successful unless you work really, really hard and you're pretty visionary in your thinking. I always kind of like to imagine that if this farmer had lived in our high-tech, computer-driven culture, Jesus might have described him as a software genius. He comes up with this brilliant idea. He gets some venture capital to start his company. He puts in lots of hours developing and then creatively marketing his product. And before he realizes it, 
Profits are at 30% a year and growing. Wall Street loves his firm. The company's stock soars and then splits and then soars some more. And since things are going so well, he decides to expand his company's business by developing some new products and then targeting new markets, both locally and globally. I mean, this guy's making so much money so fast, he can't fill his IRAs and his 401ks and his investment portfolio. Now, let's pause for just a second, though, and look at his priorities. In other words, let's look at what he values. First of all, harvest large crops, and that is build out a really successful career. Build bigger barns. Expand the business. Achieve financial security. Have at least a million dollars in savings. Eat what I want. Drink what I want. Be merry all the time. Now, I know some people might look at this and think, well, you know, Scott, I'm not really sure there's anything wrong with this picture. I mean... After all, this guy's really sharp and he's working really, really hard and things are going really, really well. What's wrong with that? And at one level, I would agree, from one angle, things were going exceptionally well for this guy until one night, it all changed. Look at verse 20. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? Well, let's tease this out. Late one evening after kissing his wife goodnight, this guy goes up to his study. His mind is racing. He can't sleep and what he wants to do is review the new business plan for the coming year. So he's sitting in his desk and his computers are on and he punches up the Excel sheets to see what's going to happen. But then suddenly, without any warning, there's a sharp pain in his chest. All those years of too much stress, too much meat, too many cigars have caught up with him. His arteries are hardened. The blood can't get through. His heart skips a beat, and then it skips another, and then it stops. In the morning, his wife finds him dead at his desk. And then they have the funeral later on in the week, and everybody in the neighborhood, in the business community, talked about how successful he was. And people remarked about his work ethic and they reminisced about his marketing genius and how visionary he was. And then they took his casket out to the gravesite and they buried it. And then they put up a gravestone with the dates of his life and a statement about how successful he was and how hardworking he was. And then they all went home. But that night, an angel of the Lord shows up. And according to verse 20, he writes one word across that man's tombstone. It's the Greek word, aphron, which is translated fool or stupid. Friends, listen, listen, listen. Jesus doesn't call this guy evil or horrible or wicked. He calls him foolish 
because he had built his life on the silly, silly idea that if he just had more and more and more stuff, it would all be good. And that seemed to be working for a while, but then he made one big mistake. He died. Have you seen the latest statistics on death? They're frightening. And when we die, we leave all our stuff behind. Many of you in this room have probably at some point or another, at least prior to the COVID lockdown, been to California and visited Hearst Castle out there. Hearst Castle was built years and years ago by William Randolph Hearst, the great newspaper magnate. And after he built that castle, he stuffed it with ancient statues and medieval tapestries and some of the great art of all time. That house, that mansion, that castle has 72,000 square feet. And prior to the lockdown, thousands of people would go through it every year. And everybody always has the same response when they come out on the outside. Wow! He had a lot of stuff. And guess what? He left it all behind. Well, Jesus tells this story to make a similar point. Look what he says in verse 21. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. Christian writer and philosopher Dallas Willard once said that Jesus is the smartest guy who ever lived, and that's definitely true. And one of the reasons why that's true is because Jesus always directs us away from what would hurt us and pushes us toward who and what is best for us. And he does that because he loves us. And that's exactly what he does in the rest of this chapter. Look at what he says in verses 22 and following. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, or your body, what you'll wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Look at verses 27 and following. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Well, if that's how God closes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow's thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? But here's the key. Look at verse 31. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given you as well. Oh, friends, what Jesus is telling us here is that Our Father will care for us. He'll provide. And since He'll provide, we should just center our lives in the grace of His kingdom, His rule, and His reign. Now, I think we need to be clear here. Jesus is not against clothes and cars and computers or any of the other things that we use on a daily basis. And He's not saying don't ever think about money or don't ever go out to dinner Or don't ever buy a new furniture. And he's not saying that you shouldn't save for retirement. Or you shouldn't go on a family vacation. 
You should save for retirement. You should go on a family vacation. And Jesus is not saying that it's God first and then family and then job and then church and then money and possessions. That's not the way life works and that's not what he's saying. What he's telling us is that life is like a wheel. And at the hub, at the center, should be God and his kingdom. And see, as we put Christ and his kingdom at the center of our lives, his power and his presence then flow out of us into all the other areas, our marriage and our family, our friendships, our work, our recreation, and then how we view and how we manage all our stuff. And as we center our lives more and more in Christ, we're automatically going to be living out one of the core values of his kingdom, which is generosity. Look at verses 32 and 33. I love this. Jesus says, don't be afraid, little flock. He calls us his little flock. He says, don't be afraid, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your Sell your stuff, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that won't be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Uh, As Mark had mentioned earlier, I'm a church history geek. And I've read a lot of church history up to this point in my life. And three of my favorite church historians are Rodney Stark and Paul Johnson and Robert Louis Wilkin, and they've all done a lot of work on the history of the early church. And what they show us is that the early church was incredibly generous with their time and their energy and their material resources because they knew what Jesus had done for them. He had given them the gospel, eternal life. And because they believed that, they centered their lives in his kingdom. And because they centered their lives in his kingdom, They shared their resources inside and outside of the church. They helped the needy and they took care of orphans and widows. They tended to the sick. And as they did so over time, they won more and more and more people to the Christian way of life. In the middle of the fourth century, there was an emperor came to power who was known as Julian the Apostate. And Julian hated Christianity and he wanted to revert the Roman Empire back to paganism. But that was impossible to do because by that time, the church was so widespread and it was so generous that it was touching the vast majority of people in the empire. And at one point, Julian became so frustrated that in a moment of rare honesty, and he could be a little bit crude, he said this, I hate those damn Christians. They not only feed their own poor, They feed ours as well. See, friends, the early church realized that storing up all this stuff is just silly because we just eventually leave it all behind. Instead, what they did was they centered their lives in the kingdom of God and they gave generously to everyone who had need. Now, I'd like to suggest that that's the call of Christ on your life and on my life as well. So can I offer a word of encouragement? Many of you in this church have centered your lives in the kingdom of God and you have given incredibly generously. 
Can I encourage you to keep up that level of generosity and invest in this church, maybe even more through the rest of 2020 on into 2021? This is a great place to invest your money. This church needs to be here. This church has a huge ministry in this community. If you're investing here, that is a great thing. I want to encourage you to keep that up. Others of you in here, you've, been, you've centered your life in the kingdom of God as well, and your heart is really with the poor and the dispossessed. And you're supporting kids through Compassion International or Food for the Hungry or Samaritan's Purse. I think that's fantastic. I want to encourage you to do that. And I want to encourage you, think about maybe adopting another kid or two through the rest of 2020 on into 2021. Some of you in here may be struggling with the whole issue of stuff and giving and generosity. So can I encourage you to just talk to Jesus about that? Have a time of prayer with him? See what he tells you? And then maybe sell some of your stuff and see what you can do with the proceeds? A few years back, I went to a memorial service at a church up in Longmont for a retired faculty member from Denver Seminary. And the reason I decided to go was because this gentleman had been one of my professors. And while he was not a big cheese professor, he was always kind of on the margins of the faculty. He had always been far better to me than I deserved. And so when he passed, I wanted to go up and pay my respects. Well, he was 80 years old when he died. And usually when you get to be about 80, you've outlived most of your peer group. So I thought, oh, there'll probably be 150 to 200 people at this memorial service. So I drove up to the church and I'd been at this church before and the parking lot was packed. There was no place for me to park in the parking lot. In fact, I had to drive a street up further north and park my car there and then walk back into the church. And that church building sat about 800 people. And when I walked into the auditorium, it was packed out. I barely found a seat in the far pew at the back end over there where I could shoehorn myself in. Well, then eventually the funeral service starts and they did some singing they sang some hymns and then the pastor got up and gave a homily and then somebody gave a eulogy about Dick's life and then they did something at the memorial service that I don't like they did the open mic thing and the reason I don't like that is because I've been in funeral services where that kind of stuff went way off the rails But this one was unbelievable. It was simply amazing. Person after person after person got up and in very brief statements just told about how incredibly generous Dick was. There was the 10-year-old boy who got up and he said, we always liked it when Mr. B would teach Sunday school because he would tell us about Jesus and give us donuts. There was the 85-year-old widow who got up and she said, well, I always loved it when Dick and Loretta would come over because they would come and they would minister to me and they would pray with me and they'd always bring me dinner. There was the 42-year-old business guy who had 20 years before had been the youth pastor at this church and on one occasion, not long after he got hired as the youth pastor, he had wrecked the church van and thought he was going to lose his job and he didn't call the pastor, he didn't call the elders. He called Dick and said, what do I do? And Dick said, I'll take care of it. And he did. And they never told anybody. And that guy never told anybody that until that day in that church service. And on and on it went. And I wanted to stay, but I had a class I had to teach at Denver Seminary. So I was, I had to leave and I was driving home on I-25. 
and I had a conversation with the Lord. And I said, Lord, I want to make an impact like that. I want to leave a legacy like that. I want to be rich like that. Now you have to understand, I'm not a mystic. That's just not the way God works with me. But on this occasion, I heard the Holy Spirit whisper to me and say, Scott, if you want to make an impact like that, if you want to leave a legacy like that, if you want to be rich like that, then do what Dick did. Center your life in my kingdom and be extravagantly generous.